Hi, I'm Margie Namora, and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island. I hope you're all very well. Thank you for tuning in to another episode, or perhaps this is your first, in which case you are very welcome. And you have quite the big back catalogue to get stuck into. (laughs) I am delighted that this episode of the podcast is brought to you in partnership with Sweaty Betty. I've been a longtime fan of Sweaty Betty since their early days with their shop in Notting Hill, when I used to go to their free exercise classes in the park when I was back from university. They're still a family-owned business set up by the very impressive Tamara, who remains creative director. And they're just one of those feel-good brands that are really good at what they do. And I really love how positive all of their messaging is. I actually record this message wearing head-to-toe Sweaty Betty and I could not be cosier. To celebrate Sweaty Betty sponsoring this episode, there is a very generous 20% off for you to use online. You just have to use the code Desert Island Dishes. That's all one word. Thank you so much to Sweaty Betty. Without further ado, here is today's episode. My guest today is Dr. Rupi Orjula. You may know him as the Doctor's Kitchen. He is a medical doctor working as a GP in the NHS. In 2011, he helped himself overcome a pretty serious medical condition by overhauling his lifestyle and the food he ate. This was a light bulb moment as he realized that a lot of patients would benefit from a holistic approach to both the body and the mind. The Doctor's Kitchen has gone from strength to strength with best-selling cookbooks, and he's also created the UK's first culinary medicine course, through which he now trains other medics on the foundations of nutrition and how to cook. I found a quote from Rupi that I loved where he said, I'm just a straight-talking NHS doctor lending my unbiased opinion and healthy eating and showing everybody how to get phenomenal ingredients on their plates every day. Welcome, Rupi. <laughs> Thanks for that introduction. I always shudder when people introduce me and I'm like, oh, I, d- I can't take compliments very well. Yeah, everyone always finds the introduction <laughs> yeah. a little bit awkward. But I thought reading that quote, I mean, I kind of feel like if James Bond were a doctor interested in nutrition, that's the kind of quote he would say. <laughs> that's quite Good. I've never heard that one. Before. I'm just a straight talking NHS doctor. Um, so when I was researching you for this interview and thinking of how I would describe what you do, I came across this description on your publisher's website, I believe it was. Yeah. And I just wanted to read it because, well, you'll see. Okay. So Dr. Rupi is a practicing GP in London. He makes regular appearances on ITVs this morning. He's the go-to doctor on BBC Asian Network's Noreen Khan show with half a million listeners, men's health recipe creator and doctor, TEDx NHS speaker, Huffington Post shortlist stylist, Metro contributor, as well as contributing to leading nutrition websites, including nutritionfacts.org. Dr. Rupi and the Doctor's Kitchen have growing social presence on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter. He's recently launched the doctor's kitchen podcast i mean i feel like i need to have a nap just from saying that (laughs) but you are a full-time practicing doctor yeah so i'm i'm part-time now okay um over the last two years i made the conscientious decision to go down to two clinical days per week okay um and i work in both uh, accident and emergency in uh, ultra and urgent care pediatrics um, as well as doing locum GP as well because I was gonna say do you have more hours in the day than yeah, other people? yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and those two clinical days are a push as well. I mean, they're usually uh, at weekends because Monday to Friday I'm doing loads of other things or they're out of hours. So I often work, you know, 1 p.m. till midnight, something like that. So odd hours, but it means that I can focus on what I feel can have the biggest impact on public health, which is showing people and educating people on the medicinal effects of eating well. Yeah, And that's been the mission right from the start. I, I suppose when I started this project, it was just a passion to teach my patients the basis of cooking and, and why it's so important. And I never thought it would turn into a podcast or a book or, you know, me essentially finding myself in a position where I'm trying to educate the future doctors and how they can have meaningful conversations about food in clinical environments, whether that be in general practice, whether it be in psychiatry, whether it be in surgery. And it's kind of weird, like I found my calling this way through food, um, but I've always been a foodie. Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because I guess that kind of career progression, you couldn't plan that. You couldn't sort of go into medicine and be like, oh, I'm going to be the person to do that. It just has to sort of evolve naturally. Exactly. Yeah. And I would have never have guessed when I left medical school over 10 years ago now that I'd be sat here in the offices of my publishers talking about a food revolution that I feel could benefit most people around the world, um, particularly us uh, in the UK. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite mind-boggling to look back on. But you know what? It's, it's weird. And, and that's why I find these scenarios where someone reads out what I've done thus far quite... I, I get shy. I get very shy about it. because I, I, I think I'm humbled by the problem and the mission to try and solve it that I never really think about what accomplish, uh, accomplishments uh, I have achieved or, or other people in this industry have achieved thus far. I just think about the magnitude of the issue mm. uh, and how much work there still is to do. Yeah. But I think it's nice to every now and then just uh, look back and just appreciate where, yeah, where I, we've come. I think it's important, but I think also that says probably quite a lot about you being the right person to tackle this problem because you're not sort of focusing on personal goals, even though you're, you know, doing very well. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> so Rupi, you grew up in an Indian household and your mother sounds like the most fantastic cook. So let's talk about the first desert yeah. dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. I have vivid memories of food in general growing up. So my mom is a culinary whiz and she literally would make so many different types of foods. I mean, you come from an Indian background. So both my mom and dad are Punjabi. So obviously we had loads of Indian style dishes and stuff, but my mom would experiment with like Italian food, uh, like British, modern European stews, lasagnas, all that kind of stuff. Like we were spoiled for choice uh-huh. uh, as kids. And what, and this is going to sound really pretentious, but I guarantee you, this is really what makes me think of my childhood. So my sister's about five years younger than me. And I remember coming home. I think I must have been about 11 or 12. And my mum would cook for us garlic chili prawns, (laughs) tons of like olive oil, like in true Mediterranean style with fresh French baguettes. And we'd come back from school and we'd sit in our kitchen, mum would just make these like, you know, the jumbo tiger prawns that you get uh, with the shells on and everything and like tons of delicious spices, loads of dry red chili flakes. And we, she would serve this to us in these bowls and we would get this fresh French (laughs) and just dip it into the oil and like all the flavor and stuff. And as I'm describing it, I can, I can, vividly taste yeah. the garlic and the, and the chili in my mouth. Just, <laughs> it was so, and it was so vibrant and vivid i remember like telling um 
my friends about it at school that we would i don't know how we got into the conversation of food they were like you know oh, what do you have after dinner or after you get back from school or whatever so yeah you know garlic prawns <laughs> no big deal I'm like oh we're having chicken nuggets yeah, like, yeah. oh really <laughs> it was my sister my sister was probably like seven at the yeah. time and she you know most seven-year-olds would want crisps or like oh, chocolate yeah but it spo- like did that sport kind of spoil you for life yeah it yeah. really did yeah yeah and um I suppose that brings us nicely onto the next topic, which is like me learning to cook. Yeah. Right? So your mum, I mean, she sounds amazing on all sorts of fronts, but she became really quite ill when you were about 11. And in many ways, that set into motion a series of events that made you decide to become a doctor at yeah. a really quite a young age. I think that's such an interesting part of your story. Can you talk us through that a bit and tell us what actually happened back then? Yeah, yeah. So another story. I don't know whether I've told this before, actually, but when I was around 11 or 12, I can't remember exactly how old I was. My mum brought me into our kitchen. I think it was a kitchen. No, no, it was the lounge. And she sat on the sofa and she was like, Rupi, I need you to, to do something. I need you to inject me with this pen right now. And I remember like shaking and she handed me what I now know is an EpiPen. But okay. It was like a big, uh, it looks like a big uh, felt tip pen, you know, like a big Sharpie. And she's like, we need to do is push this into my thigh right now and push it down hard as you can. And so I did that, I was shaking, and I was like, <laughs> I was right traumatizing. Pushed it down until it clicks, just like an EpiPen would do. And what happens when um, an EpiPen clicks is that it shoots out a fine needle and it goes directly into the uh, skin, okay. uh, into the, into the um, uh, muscle, and it, in- it infuses uh, adrenaline. And so I did that. And then she feigned like rubbing her thigh after that and told me <laughs> that it was a dummy pen. Oh, my God. I know. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> well, but you thought she was having... Yeah, yeah. So she, she said to me very clearly, she was like, I need you to inject me this pen right now. Uh, go ahead and do it. And <gasps> I literally, it lasted about 20 seconds. I mean, pushed it down. And then she was like, okay, that was the test. Oh, my and God. You need to, <laughs> and you need to know that if anything happens to me and I tell you to do that, now you know you can do it. Okay. Essentially, what my mum was suffering from back in the day were um, anaphylactic shocks. Okay. And they were idiopathic. So essentially, we don't know why she was having these attacks. And anaphylaxis is like the worst form of allergy where your blood pressure drops, um, you can pass out, uh, you can get covered in hives, you can get something called urticaria, your, your throat can swell, uh, affecting your airway. So a number of different uh, issues. And there were no clear causes or no clear triggers found. And she'd been seen by tons of different immunologists. What she decided to do after being told that she'd have to be on lifelong medication and always carry an EpiPen uh, with her, which she'd had to use a couple of times in in some quite um, uh, horrific scenarios, she decided to overhaul her lifestyle and using this Ayurvedic approach, which is a very much sort of back to basics, Indian, ancient Indian medicine sort of uh, approach and mindset was to really assess her diet and her lifestyle and stress and meditation, all these other things. Did those changes, did they come naturally to her? Like had she already been living quite a holistic kind of life or what, like where did those changes come from? Well, she was trained as a lawyer and I believe she had quite a stressful lifestyle at that point as well. Um, so yeah, I think it came naturally to her in that she knew about Ayurvedic medicine and just the ways of how we put our body in the best environment and we allow it to look after itself with this innate 
you know, mechanisms, but she wasn't putting it into practice and using an analytical approach that she had as a, as a lawyer, she was able to systematically go through all the different things and tick them off. So improve her diet, improve her stress levels, improve her sleep and stuff and doing a lot of research around the subject. And as a, as a 12 year old, I watched her come off all different medications and really flourish and improve her health using a holistic approach. And me attending these different immunology appointments with her, going to see countless other doctors, me having that experience of like having to inject her with a dummy pen, fortunately I never had to do it for real, really made me consider medicine as a, as a choice, as a lifelong choice, because you know watching her help herself and the impact it had on herself and just that position that I could find myself in the future where I could be helping other people mm. fascinated me at such a young age. And yeah. that was really the driver for me wanting to go and medicine against the wishes of my parents. Oh, definitely. really? Because no, yeah, I was going to yeah. say, isn't that sort of every parent's dream yeah. that your child yeah, will become yeah. a doctor? Yeah, particularly every Indian parent's <laughs> dream as well. Um, yeah, no, they, they were both in um, business and mum's law and stuff. And none of my family members from either side of the family were in medicine. And I decided to go against their wishes and actually go That's medicine. That's so interesting. Yeah, I mean, obviously now they're very appreciative of it but now yeah, yeah. back then because you're right that is such a powerful lesson to learn really early on and i guess at that age and even kind of now you're like a sponge aren't you just sort of soaking up everything so it has a real impact absolutely it's like a lifelong learning process and i would never like like to think of myself an expert in anything you would never have studied it for 40 50 years mm. so much and even like to this day i find new information i mean that's why i'm doing my master's in nutritional medicine okay because you're not so busy enough so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just love it I, I have this passion for learning and i would i do this in my spare time anyway okay so formalizing it through uh, a university program is sort of like just another way to add more credibility to what i do i suppose yeah. but um I, I genuinely have a passion for just lifelong learning and i don't think it's ever going to stop yeah especially i guess also your field is just constantly evolving and i mean as with everything there's always more to learn but particularly with what you're doing it's just sort of you know absolutely yeah yeah and i think translating that to public health and and to the population in a way that's easy to understand is my 100% mission because yeah. there's no point studying a subject that has the potential to help many, many people but people are fearful of essentially sharing their information for fear of retribution or for fear of not being evidence-based enough or, yeah. or whatever there are there are so many clear things that we can teach the public that could better themselves mm. um so that's why i think it's really important yeah so interesting okay let's talk about the second desert island dish and that's the first dish that you learned to cook yeah so this actually has a place in my first cookbook it's okay. the um thai lemongrass curry that my mom again taught me how to cook before I went to medical school. So as a 17 year old, she sat me down in the kitchen. She was like, you're going away from medical school now. You need to learn how to cook. And so she taught me this, what seems like a complicated dish, but the way she taught me using galangal, lemongrass, kaffir lime leaves, coconut milk, some delicious Thai basil spices as well. The way she taught me and simplified the process just made it so easy. And I was just like, this is great. And I had a repertoire of two or three other dishes and I went to medical school and everyone thought I was this incredible <laughs> chef. <laughs> but Thanks, mom. <laughs> yeah, I know. In reality, I only knew how to make three dishes. Because I was going to ask, because I had heard a rumor that that's what your mom did. And I thought that was amazing. What <laughs> else was in your sort of arsenal? 
Oh, it was just, um, I think it was a <laughs> walnut bread, steak, cheese, and something else. I can't remember. It was like a snack sort of food. That's uh, a great idea. I know. Yeah. Um, croissant oh. with spinach, cheese, a cold cut, and something else. They weren't particularly like overly healthy or anything. It was just like, you know, general food. But yeah. For a student making a croissant sandwich. I mean, it's a bit out there. Yeah. You must have been like yeah. the most popular man on campus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So off you went to medical school to embark on the pretty rigorous six-year training. And during that time as a junior doctor, you suffered your own pretty scary health complication. You got what is called atrial fibrillation. Well pronounced. (laughs) (laughs) And that again was a huge catalyst for a change in both your life and your career. First, can you tell us a little bit what that means? Because I know that I just said that relatively confidently, yeah. but I don't actually know what it means. Yeah. And how did it come about? Yeah. So, the, I mean, the, how it came about is still a mystery for okay. cardiologists, actually. But so when I qualified as a junior doctor in 2009, I started working at Basildon Hospital, busy hospital, very stressful, long hours, poor sleep. My first sort of experience doing night shifts for like seven days in a row, that sort of thing. Three months into the job, I was... um on a shift and my heart started going very, very fast. And I thought I could just you know, shake it off. Maybe I had not enough water that day or whatever. Anyway, I spoke to my registrar uh, after five minutes and feeling like I was going to pass out, asked her to um, feel my pulse. And it was going at about 150 beats per minute. She put me on. Wait, what's it meant to be going at? Oh, so a normal pulse is anywhere between 60 to 90. When oh, okay. So yours was really racing. Yeah, mine was pretty fast. Yeah. Mine was the equivalent of if you've just done a high intensity interval session or you've just done a sprint, that kind of okay. level is very, very fast. So she was like, we should definitely do an ECG. Did an ECG and it was barn door atrial fibrillation, which is essentially a fast, in my case, irregular heartbeat where the synchronicity of the heart is lost. So that normal lub-dub pattern that you have has been lost because there are misfiring cells usually found near a large uh, vessel called the pulmonary vein. So I was immediately taken off call. I was parked in a hospital bed right next to a patient I'd been seeing. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, what are you doing? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I was uh, kept overnight uh, in a monitoring unit. Um, fortunately, my blood pressure wasn't low. I didn't need an electrocardioversion, which is where you have that typical scene in a... In a oh, the paddles. department with the paddles. Yeah, we don't use paddles anymore. Okay. But, uh, but yeah. yeah, no, fortunately, I've never had to have that. But these episodes, and I thought that would be a one-off for whatever reason, would happen two to three times per week. And so I went through the rigorous process of seeing multiple different cardiologists over the next six to 12 months, having test after test, trying to figure out what was triggering it. It wasn't alcohol. I wasn't drinking caffeine. It wasn't anything that I could really attribute to one specific thing. And so I was going to have something called an ablation, which is where you put a guide wire into the heart and it essentially burns an area around the heart, which is sort of like ring fencing these these misfiring okay. cells. Yeah, but cool. so quite serious. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, for me as a young twenty four year old at the time, who was relatively fit, had no previous medical history, structurally my heart was normal. I had all the tests and uh, investigations to demonstrate that, so I was a good candidate for this procedure that was sold to me as potentially curative at the time. We now know looking at research is not as curative as we thought and the recurrence rates have actually increased. Oh. Yeah. But you didn't do that. No, no. But at the time I was 100% going for it. And 
my mum was the only person who's not medically trained <laughs> who said, you really need to look at your lifestyle and you need to optimize your food, your stress management, your sleep and try and figure this out. And it was more me trying to appease my mum, if I'm honest. Okay. <laughs> I was a conventionally trained doctor. What she sat, what she was talking about sounded like quackery. There's nothing to suggest in the literature that any of that would would work. And so I, with the blessing of my cardiologist, tried it and, and you know, started with food and then stress reduction. I, I knew how to meditate. I used to meditate at medical school and at school as well. My parents had taught me. So I started doing that more often. I started optimizing my rest periods. Um, I wasn't exercising as much. Uh, I would do like conscious exercise, just, just, you know, not to stress my heart out, I suppose. Yeah. And how long did you give yourself to do this? I was going to give myself six months and quit. Okay. And really in my head, I was like six months, make mum happy, have the ablation, just get it done. You've um, got to keep mum happy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but much to my amazement after that period of time, I now would regularly track these AF episodes that would happen two, three times a week and I'd be going anywhere between 12 and 36 hours of this fast heartbeat they went away and I haven't had episodes since. <laughs> and me really on this journey, that was really the start of my journey because it was me trying to retrospectively figure out why on earth this would happen. Yeah. And there is no specific thing that you can say was the ultimate reason as to why I put this into remission. It could have been me improving my fiber intake and improving my microbiota. It yeah. could be me improving my stress levels. It could be me essentially lowering inflammation by improving sleep. We know exercise has pleiotropic effects on the body in terms of uh, anti-inflammatory benefits, in terms of uh, improving resilience. There are so many different mechanisms that occur when you make lifestyle changes. It is absolutely impossible to prove or explain in a nice tidy sort of uh, algorithm or a nice tidy explanation why that happened. That must have been, yeah, I mean, it's an overused phrase that I, t I tend to use every single episode, but it, that must have been a light bulb moment. It was a bit of a light bulb moment for me because it was kind of like, well, I haven't been taught this and no one else in my conventional sort of medical circle of friends knows this, but there is a sort of innate understanding that this is common sense. Mm. And I think us in an era that's dominated with evidence base constantly try and protect ourselves with what papers and what uh, evidence will say. And whilst that is exceptionally important, it cannot be at the expense of common sense. And so that's why I'm such a passionate believer in food and lifestyle as medicine, because it is common sense. Yeah. And I think we lose sight of common sense if we, if we chain ourselves to purely what conventional scientific thinking is. And I think it needs to be a nice blend of everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. It can't be an isolation. Yeah. Read along it, with. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, there are so many different things that we can do uh, with our clinical tools as, as doctors and, and health professionals. And food and lifestyle is just another clinical tool. Yeah. We need to use it more. Yeah, it makes so much sense. That's so interesting. Let's pause there and talk about the third desert island dish. And that's the best dish you've ever eaten. Best dish I've ever eaten. This is such a hard question to, to answer. But I think it was less about the dish and more about the experience. Yeah. Um, so when I, um, I turned 30... And I had a panic moment. I was okay. living in Sydney. Uh, I was working as an A&E doctor at Manly and Monavale. 
and it was amazing. Uh, I, I loved that experience. I was there for two years. I've got some amazing bosses. Uh, I met some amazing friends. But I had a panic moment when I was 30 because I hadn't, I qualified as a GP. I went out to Australia. I wanted some time off essentially from the NHS that I was facing burnout. And for my 30th birthday, I had a panic moment and I just booked a ticket to Japan and I went on my own and I had the most amazing six days and I made so many new friends. And I and one of my best friends from the UK happened to be in Japan at the same time. I didn't realize. So we had this incredible time, six, six days. And I told her, this is... Uh, four months before I launched the doctor's kitchen, I told her about the project and she was like, you have to do this. You absolutely have to do this. And I was very scared at the time of talking about, you know, food as medicine and, and what my colleagues and seniors would think and all the rest of it. Anyway, come long story short, come back. And my friends in Sydney were a little bit annoyed that I just left and they were like, you know, you need to have this party or whatever. <laughs> so um, I, w- I was going to, to meet a friend of mine for dinner, just me and him. I went to the wharf, Manly Wharf, and there were all my friends from Sydney and they'd arranged a, a meal at Catalina's in Rose Bray, which is in Sydney. It's a waterfront restaurant that looks over Sydney Harbour and they serve incredible food. And we must have had everything on the menu. I mean, they had lobster, fresh fish. I mean, lobster in, in Sydney is, is sort of like the done thing anyway. There's yeah. so much seafood out there. We had Morton Bay bugs, uh, which are almost like mini lobsters. We had oysters. We had literally like all the sea- this huge seafood platter. And just I remember that moment just being surrounded by people I'd only met like a year ago. And it was the first time I'd ever been surprised. Like I had a proper surprise birthday. That's so nice. Yeah. And it was that moment. And that's why I'm a true believer in, in food not just being thought of as something for health benefits. It's something that we enjoy and, and should embrace with the perspective that this is how we communicate across cultures and how yeah. we share these amazing experiences with our loved ones. Completely. It's so much more than just about the food, isn't it? Mm, yeah. And that sounds amazing. It was so good. Yeah. It was, I, yeah. You'll I, never forget that. I'll never forget that. And that was probably the best meal that I've had. Yeah. That brings about lots of memories. <laughs> so it was in Australia that you sort of formulated your idea for the doctor's kitchen. At that time when you were thinking about it, what was the dream? What was the plan? At the time, it was purely to try and influence the patients that I was treating in my sort of my surroundings. So the idea kind of stemmed from an experience I had when I was still training as a GP and a patient who I'd just been having a nice open conversation about um, changing his breakfast up for oats, maybe having some nuts and, and some other things rather than the the sort of quick fix bar that he was having and a, and a quick sort of milkshake that he had bought, which is full of sugar. And as he was leaving, he said, just one more thing, doctor, how do you make oats? And And then it was like, again, another light bulb moment where I was like, Oh, so people have lost that connection to cooking and people just don't know how to cook. If I could create sort of like videos that were aspirational and easy to watch and, and you know, motivating and, and just simple cooking, maybe I can actually influence my patients to, to sort of cook their way to health. Yeah. And, um, and that was kind of when I, I started, when I actually had some time to focus in on the project um, was actually when I was living in Sydney working in emergency medicine. <laughs> and I just, I got behind a camera. It was my iPhone. I recorded some, some stuff, uh, which is still the intro on my YouTube of the doctor's kitchen where I throw loads of fruits and veg on the board and just put it out there. Yeah. 
You just took a deep breath and did it. Yeah. Because yeah. I know you did just mention that you were a bit worried when you were going to launch it, that maybe people would be a bit dismissive and they might think that, you know, alternative medicine and this yeah. holistic approach. I think the word you used was that you didn't want people to label you as a quack. Yeah. But was that your experience? You know, if it wasn't for the experience that I had and the positive reaction I had from not just my my colleagues and my juniors, but also my seniors, I remember walking into A&E I think it was a week after, uh, and it was one of my bosses, Dr. Hannah, and she literally came up to me and she was like, Rupi, I absolutely love that channel that you just launched. I think it's so needed. And I think, you know, if you're passionate about food, I know you can cook because I used to bring food in all the time when I was in Aini. She's like, if you can do that, you should definitely do it, like carry on. And honestly, it was those like, those little pep talks from my seniors that made me realize, you know what, this is really important. And, and if I've got their support, then nothing can really stop me. And I think yeah. I should, because, you know, if I genuinely believe my cause is, is positive and just and will have an impact on people's lives, then I should, I should definitely carry on. Yeah. Also, I think it just shows we shouldn't worry so much and try to predict what other people are going to think, because often we're way meaner to ourselves yeah. than anyone else is going to be. Yeah. And I think like, you know, as a doctor, you don't want to step out of line. You don't want to be seen as cavalier. You know, we have a duty to protect and we have a duty to, you know, make sure that people are safe and patients are safe. And, and that gives us a lot of responsibility. Mm. And I think that maybe was one of the reasons why I spent so long even deciding to launch it. And even now, you know, I'm very cautious about anything I say in that context because it can be taken and, and misinterpreted and sometimes purposely misinterpreted to discredit. But in a large sort of way, I, I think what I try to put out is always going to be understandable and accessible for most people. Yeah, I'd say you definitely succeed in that. <laughs> Let's talk about the fourth desert island dish. And that's your favorite sandwich. My favorite sandwich. <laughs> oh my God. It's a very important question. Really. Yeah, yeah. So there is a, bre- I don't know if we're allowed to name names. You're allowed to name oh, names. Oh, okay, yeah. cool, cool. All right. So this is bread. <laughs> and... um Oh, you know what? I think I might have forgotten the name. <laughs> I can visualize it. It's in, uh, I think you can only get it online on Ocado okay. or you can get it on um, Whole Foods. And I think it's called the Grain of Life. Okay. And it's a, a bread that feels like a brick. Okay. And it's made of... You're really selling it. Yeah, yeah. It's like those German rye style yeah. breads that you can get. Um, It's made of oats, psyllium husk, seeds, like sunflower, pumpkin... And you, you slice into it and it's like a really dense, savory cake almost. Mm. Toast it. Okay. Put some olive oil on it. I smear some hummus. I put some something fresh and crunchy. So that can be some lettuce, sometimes usually spinach or rocket. I layer that with some tomatoes. And then I, I, I sprinkle some salt, pepper, a little bit of lemon juice. Yeah. And some sumac, which Ooh. is like a lemony sort of, you know, comes from the rus plant. Uh, Ottolenghi loves using it. It's amazing. And so just that. And then again, with the toasted thing on top, and I just slice that. So it's like a, it's like a posh hummus sandwich, really. But it just, 
tastes so good and it's so satisfying it's so easy to make that sounds really good it's i'm just, not gonna lie yeah. we got off to a bad start when you described the bread as a brick but now <laughs> i'm converted and i'm gonna go and order some because that sounds delicious yeah it's really good it honestly really it's good. so filling as well and it's just yeah yeah a good sandwich <laughs> so i'm so interested in this because i think the amazing thing as we've touched on about food is that there are so many different roles that it plays in our lives and so many different ways to look at it and to think about it and you're perspective of food as medicine, which is not really my area of expertise, obviously, but I'm so interested to learn. And I wondered, do you think that what we've seen on social media, the bad and some good, has that been beneficial in your to your particular cause in raising the profile and opening the conversation up about food and medicine? Yeah, I think it's a really important question. And it's actually a chapter I dedicated to um, in, in the first book where I talked about um, healthy eating being accessible for everyone and, yeah. and how uh, healthy eating isn't a privilege. And it's one of the things I get asked about a lot in clinic and people sort of have this idea that healthy eating is expensive and it's unattainable for a lot of people. Whereas I actually have the belief that it's actually something that most average households can afford, if not more than that, actually. And I, I work quite closely with them. Some community kitchens, one of which is made in Hackney, um, who I absolutely adore and I became an ambassador for them. But with regard to, you know, self-styled wellness gurus and, and you know, unqualified speakers, on the one hand, I can see the damaging effects on on people, particularly those who are vulnerable to eating disorders and being influenced, I think, in the wrong way. On the other hand, they're responsible for bringing food into the mainstream conversation. And I yeah. think it's why we see more salad shops and more like green juices and you know healthier options although some of the healthy options are still as unhealthy for yeah like healthy inadvertent commas <laughs> yeah yeah either because they're just the sugar loaded or because they are offering a, a nutrient poor option or sort of like guilt around food and stuff like that yeah so i think i'm in mixed minds but overall i think if it wasn't for people taking a grander interest people like myself wouldn't have as much of a platform mm. and to that i'm grateful but i think you know we have to be reserved about how we present ourselves and and um what kind of information uh, we put out to the public because we do have a huge responsibility and that's why as i said you know i have great anxiety before i post anything because i don't want anything to be construed in a negative way yeah so stressful <laughs> it is it is actually yeah because you know, one hand, if I put something, and I'm largely plant-based as well, I, I, I coin it plant-focused. If I put something with some eggs in it, somebody is going to shoot me down saying, you know, eggs have got high cholesterol. How could you put this and how could you be promoting this? On the one hand, on the other hand, you know, if I'm completely plant-based, people say, well, it's lacking vitamin B12 and K2 and where people are getting their omega 3s, mm. particularly if they're not good converters to the long chain fatty acid. I no. guess for you, it's kind of hard to separate you personally because you're a doctor but you're still a person making your own personal choices and then what you're putting out as advice for other people like yeah. it's kind of hard when they get conflated yeah exactly yeah and i think that's one of the reasons why i started coloring medicine as a non-profit because it shouldn't be about one person telling everyone what they should eat it should be about personalizing what we eat based on a number of different factors of which health is one 
but others are convenience, environment, personal choice. Um, and that's very hard to communicate through a Instagram, which is focused around one person. Yeah. Um, and that's why I really hope the brand, the doctor's kitchen will take over in the future where that actually represents not just me, but actually other people around the world. If so. Um, yeah, that's so interesting. Mm. And we're just going to pause there and talk about the fifth desert island dish. And that's the dish you eat the most often. The dish I eat most often tends to change okay. uh, around the way it like um, my main meals can be sometimes Middle Eastern flavored, British European. I'm actually going through a bit of a pasta phase Ooh, at the moment. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. I know. What's yeah. your sort of go to pasta? So I have a, <laughs> a South super healthy. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> Spelt fusilli. Okay. Okay, it's nice. like a whole grain pasta. It's got this gorgeous brown color to it. And um, where do you get the best one? I get it from Biona. I think it's oh, Biona's yeah. the brand. Yeah. They do a whole bunch of different, there are lots of other brands do it as well. But it's so easy to make. You undercook it, obviously, <laughs> undercook it by boiling, I think, for like seven minutes. Okay. I like, we're getting specific. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Throw it into your either sugo or I tend to have it with tons of different vegetables. And I don't put that much pasta in actually because I like the flavors of everything else. So hazelnut cooked in um, extra virgin olive oil with um, some either finely chopped rocket, some red peppers, like, you know, the roasted red peppers you get in, oh, the, yes. in, in the, the jars. Jar. Yeah. And yeah, just throw that all in together and oh, oh, with a garlic, of course, and maybe a herb like uh, rosemary or thyme or something like that. Throw it all together. And just that makes just the most satisfying quick meal. And I've been working in any... Um, quite regularly over the last uh, couple of weeks so that after a shift brilliant yeah, <laughs> yeah. even if you're not um coming home from a shift that's yeah. really good <laughs> yeah. and so we should say that culinary medicine is your non-profit that you've set up to teach other people in the industry all about food and, and how to cook which yeah, is so yeah. important. It's essentially a concept that came from America of all places. And they've actually had culinary medicine programs running for the last six years, if not more, actually. And so we have essentially looked through the papers that are all open source and stuff. And we worked with a, a couple of medical schools to create our own sort of culinary medicine offering and encourage medical schools in the UK to essentially create their own as well. Okay. Yeah. Because when I was researching, I had no idea that nutrition was such a small part of your education as a doctor. I think you said in six years, you did 10 hours mm. of nutrition training, which is so little. Yeah. Yeah. And in a lot of cases, it's less than that. Okay. It's sometimes non-existent as well. In fact, I just did a workshop with um, primary care physicians at UCL in anticipation of the course that we're going to be running later on in the year between September and March. And um, the, 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 the amount of nutrition uh, across all these different, I think we had about 30 people in the room ranging from 40 years of experience to like they've just qualified. It ranged from little to none uh, across, across the whole board. And if you think about how these GPs are in a position where they see upwards of 40 patients per day they're having large number of interactions with the public and we're not equipped to have lifestyle conversations yeah. in the context of lifestyle related disease, having the biggest burden on the NHS, it's inexcusable. And so that's why I'm so passionate about actually doing this going yeah, forward because so it's important. so, yeah, yeah. So needed. But how exciting to be doing something where you can see there's such a need for it. Yeah. And it's just about demonstrating, I think, in the future using appropriate research tools that we are actually having a difference. Um, yeah. 
And so that's a kind of um, that's a problem for us to solve because we can't just rely on common sense. We have to rely on uh, research. Mm. Now let's move on to the sixth desert island dish, and that's your go-to dinner party dish. My go-to dinner party dish. So I have a few. <laughs> One that I make quite often is um is couscous because mm-hmm. it's so easy to make. And so I make a couscous with vegetable sock. So the trick is, you, instead of just pouring plain old boiling water into your couscous, first of all, get yourself a large bowl, put your amount of couscous in, and then pre-mix your hot water, so boiling water with the vegetable stock cube and a flavor that you like. I'm currently going through a phase where I love harissa. Oh yeah. So vegetable stock, harissa paste or harissa spice mix, salt, pepper, mix that all together, throw that into your couscous, allow that to cook. And then drain some white beans, finely chop some spinach, throw that in all together. And that is sort of like a very quick couscous salad that you can serve with anything. You can serve it with a tagine that you just put onto like a big crusade or or stock pot or whatever. And then it's just so easy to make though. That way it's no stress. It looks brilliant. (laughs) It looks like so much effort. That is important. Yeah. You want people to think you've been in there a long time. Exactly. And what does Dr. Rupee serve for pudding? Oh, pudding is usually dark chocolate. Do you with... like to call you Dr. Rupert? Does everyone call you? <laughs> yeah. You can call me Rupert. Okay. Honestly, it's fine. Uh, no, I, I usually serve, uh, I'm not a very good pudding person, I must admit. I usually serve fresh fruits and dark chocolate. If I am feeling fancy, I will make my own chocolate that you can decorate with crystallized ginger Ooh, like a chocolate bar exactly yeah the bar and you just crack it and just let people go nuts on it also i see what your tactic is here because that also looks very impressive but <laughs> yeah. it's quite simple so yeah. that's a good i like that yeah on desert island dishes we have a cookbook corner and um, so i wondered what's your most treasured cookbook my most treasured cookbook is ottolenghi's last cookbook simple honestly i mean the man can't write a bad cookbook. Yeah. It's just, it's just incredible. And he's influenced so many people throughout his culinary journey, of which I'm one of them. And I just think his playfulness with flavors, the huge chefs that he's then inspired, like Romeo Scully. I, I got that book, um, Nopi, as oh, well. Yeah. And that's a really fantastic book. I mean, I can't. I, I wouldn't say I'd be able to cook anything exactly from that book because everything takes about five days. Yeah, it's not that kind of book. <laughs> it's not that kind of book. Just go to the restaurant. But no, like his use of flavor and spices, the playfulness of it. He's got a chickpea za'atar pasta in it. And I remember like thinking, this ain't going to work. It's pasta with like that. And it just tastes incredible. It's have so you met good. him? I have. <gasps> I met him at Rovi, which is his latest restaurant. Did uh, you fanboy? I did. Yeah, I did a bit. I mean, he gave me a cookbook, which is really nice of him and signed it and everything. I was there with a couple other people like Anna Jones, who again, I mean, her, her cookbooks as well are just fantastic. And everyone knows how much of a fan I am of hers and stuff. I think she's on to a fourth. Yeah, she's writing the fourth. Yeah, she's, she's just such a lovely person as well. So I was at dinner with her and the Bosch guys and the happy pair. And we just so happened to choose his restaurant. He happened to be there <gasps> cooking stuff. So it was a really that nice moment. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Really nice. It was just nice to be part of that sort of community. It was like, and going back to what we were saying, you know, when I left medical school, I never thought I'd be like getting a, a book from Otolenghi, let alone enjoying a beautiful meal in his restaurant with some other culinary colleagues. Yeah. It's so cool. 
I can't believe it, but we're on to the final seventh desert island dish. And that's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. If I had to choose one, and I'm going to make You can it... have several causes. Oh, I can have several causes. Yeah. Okay, fine, fine. So if I was to choose one, it would definitely be um, the prawn dish that I already yes. spoke about by, by my mum. Uh, if I was to choose another one, my mum makes this incredible dish. It doesn't sound very appetizing, okay. Uh, but I trust you. Trust me. It's it's one of the most. It's a staple in Indian households, Punjabi households. It's called sag, mm. which is you know steamed greens, essentially boiled down, so it turns into something quite mushy, I suppose. But with these delicious spices, it's hot. It's got attitude. It's beautifully spiced. She has um. Uh, she has a way of le- blending different sort of greens in. So traditionally, it's just with like, you know, your strong greens. But she'll put in like uh, broccoli in there, rocket, um, and loads of other things. And it's served... I like the idea of rocket. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just anything green, really, that bitter note. <laughs> and it's offset by the spices that she used, like cumin, chili, and all the rest of it. To serve that, it's, it's served steaming hot. You put fresh white butter on the top. So it's like melted on top. And it's served alongside a type of bread called maki da roti, which is like a corn bread. It's almost like a thick tortilla. And that with, you just dunk that in as you would do like a normal sort of sabji um, in Indian households. You know, just, you make a, a little sort of, what would I call it? <laughs> it's called a burki in, a, in Punjabi, but it, you sort of like use it as a little say A scooper. A scooper. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm scooping. I'm doing, doing the little action as we're talking. <laughs> Scoop it. And just that flavor of like the white butter, the greens, the sweetness of the corn, the spices coming through. It's just it just reminds me of home. It's amazing. That sounds amazing. I think we should start a petition for your mum to open a restaurant. <laughs> that sounds so good. Yeah. Dr. Rupi, those are your desert island dishes. Thank you so much. <laughs> so there we have it. Another delicious day of desert island dishes. Don't forget you can find me on Instagram at Margie Namora. If you haven't yet left a five-star rating, now is your moment. And your good deed for the week could be recommending desert island dishes to your friends and colleagues. I love bringing it to you every week and your reviews really do make the world of difference. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget you can find the website desertislanddishes.co for all the different recipes, lots of kitchen tips and tricks, and I will see you next week. Bye.